Worship was so fun. It was just, you could feel um, just the party in our hearts. Just, we were, we were really celebrating what he's done. There's, there's just nothing more powerful than his love. I was thinking about how, um, I don't know how it is that I'm even like here preaching on a, on a Sunday morning uh, and on Easter. When I look back at my life, um, it's just a, t a testimony of sordid stories and, and terrible choices and, and the Lord just redeeming me and, and just being here in his family is so amazing. Being in his family is, is the absolute best place in the world. And, and to be uh, redeemed from a life headed towards complete destruction, um, you just become a, a sign and a wonder. You become like a, a signpost of, of gratefulness to him. Um, the Lord's all about deliverance. It's for freedom that he set us free. Yeah. You can go all the way back to... Um, the Lord's plan for Israel when, when they were held captive by Egypt. <clears throat> he raised up Moses to set his people free from slavery. It's, his heart is always to set people free. But what happened with um, the Israelites is as soon as they're set free from Egypt and they, they cross through the Red Sea, which is awesome. It symbolizes baptism. The Red Sea split and they walk through like on dry ground. And there, there's that awesome scene where, you know, all the, the Egyptian army is drowned. But when they come up out of uh, that experience, they, they actually walk for three days without water. This is like a million people on a nature walk. With, without any Gatorade. Have you guys ever heard people complain like on a nature walk up a mountain or something? <laughs> this is a million people that Moses is managing at this point. And they don't have any water. This is a, a terrible situation. And then they come to this place where there's an oasis. And everyone's, you know, breathes this sigh of relief. And they're so happy. Um, <clears throat> but they, they go to drink the water and it's poison. It's bitter. And that place is actually named Mara, which means bitterness. And the people grumbled against the Lord. They grumbled against Moses. And they're saying, you know, what are we going to drink? And honestly, can you, can you blame them? They were probably pregnant women and livestock and babies. And, and they're in the desert without water. They're, they're, this is a legitimate question. What are we going to drink? And so the Lord showed Moses a stick, and Moses just decided what to do with that stick. He threw it on the water. He threw it on the bitter waters, and it became sweet. And there's, there's so many cool um, symbolic meanings in here. You know, a lot of us have bitterness in our hearts, but all we have to do is throw the cross on it. All we have to do is throw the cross on it, and it'll become sweet. And also, after, oftentimes, after leaving a place of slavery, leaving a place of bondage, the first thing that you're going to be faced with is an opportunity to get bitter. An opportunity to, get, to be reminded of those who hurt you, and, and, and actually get angry with the Lord and grumble against the Lord. Do you know that that's actually the place that He wanted to meet you? 
He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. He knows that we need water. And when you guys have been brought up out of these places of captivity, he wants to draw that bitterness out of your heart. And the way that to do that is to make it evident. To bring you to a place where you have to, you have to cry out. And his cross makes us sweet. There's just an indescribable miracle that can happen in our hearts when we, when we let his cross do that work in our, in our lives. So that place was called Mara, which means bitterness. And that was the first miracle that, that the Lord did for Israel after they came up out of captivity. And then our Savior is born. He comes along, and, and he's actually born by a woman named what? Mary. Mary. It's, the, it's the exact same word, Mara. Jesus is actually born from a place of bitterness. And then on top of that, he, he develops these friendships with four, at least four women, all named Mary. <laughs> he has Mary, his mother, obviously, Mary, the wife of Clopas, Mary of Bethany, Mary Magdalene, and there's a good case that another Mary was following them around, too. Does <laughs> anybody in here have people that you see on a daily basis that you're good friends with, that all, four of them that all share the same name? <laughs> Are there a lot of Johns in your life? <laughs> a lot of Michaels. Um, so Jesus is actually surrounding himself with bitterness. And bitterness is really the ugly offspring of unforgiveness and cynicism. If, if you get hurt and you choose not to forgive, then you'll walk down this path where you end up cynical and you believe that, oh, all those people are like that. Or that person will never change. And you've arrived in a land called bitterness and Mara. There's this one woman in particular that had a horrible name. is Mary Magdalene. You know, when Ashlyn and I got, got pregnant with our first son, Judah, we spent, you know, just tons of time praying about a good name, something that would, you know, kind of speak to his destiny, something that we could knit into, like, a little cross stitch and hang on his wall. You know, and Judah, you know, it means, like, praise. Well, Mary Magdalene, her first name means bitterness, and her last name means isolated dungeon tower. <laughs> That is something that you don't hang above your crib. <laughs> so the, the Bible a lot of times uses names to, to you know, really speak to the identity of the person. That's why God's all about name changes. He, Abram became Abraham, Sarai became Sarah, Jacob became Israel. There's several other powerful name changes. Saul, who persecuted the church, becomes Paul, who writes half of our New Testament. And these names have, have deep meaning. And you, you, can, you can spend 
you can actually, people who are like especially into like the prophetic or, or just speaking into people's lives love studying names because there's so many times the Lord will speak to you through your own name. So here's Jesus. He's surrounded by bitterness. And, and this one woman who's bitter, isolated dungeon tower. And in Luke 8, 1, chapter 8, it says, <clears throat> this is Luke 8, 1, he said, it says, he went on through cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him. And also some, woman, some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their own means. Have you ever seen someone who's been demonized? I just, I guarantee that you have, but you know, I mean, <laughs> consciously you, you know that you, like there's someone who's just really acting up because of a demonic influence in their life. Anybody ever witnessed that? Yes. How about seven? <laughs> seven. She was in bad shape, guys. She's miserable. And a, a woman like this who has seven demons, I mean, what kind of job do you think she held down? The dungeon keeper. <laughs> the dungeon keeper. <laughs> that was a good one, Marcus. Seriously, someone with seven demons, I mean, what are they going to be good for? She was, she was probably not in a profession that had a good reputation. A lot of people you know, just assume that she was a prostitute. I mean, she could have been a prostitute and a soothsayer, a, a psychic, and whatever, and IRS. Um, um, <laughs> no, God bless the IRS. Um, You know, uh, the, the main goal of a demon is to actually isolate you, make you hard to love, or make you believe that no one will love you for who you are. And so she really is isolated. She is her name. She has seven demons telling her that she's worthless and unlovable, and she's projecting that everywhere she goes. And she, so she really is an isolated dungeon tower full of bitterness. But then Jesus comes along. She gets set free from all those demons, all those wounds. I mean, when Jesus is doing the work, you get a complete overhaul. Yeah. She probably had a, a supernatural facial, you know? She like came out of there brand new. She was a brand new creature, which is exactly what he's done with us. And Jesus, he's this guy, who, he's really not concerned about his reputation as an itinerant speaker or, um, you know, trying to secure the, the next synagogue to speak at because he's got these women with him who are part of his posse and he's traveling all around. And these are women who have recently been delivered of many evil spirits, come from whatever kind of past, reputation, whatever kind of career. And on top of that, we just read something crazy. It says these women were providing for Jesus and the guys out of their own means. Yes, Lord. Come on. Yes. This is awesome. 
Any, are there any women in here who are wondering what they're called to in life? It might be the sugar mama anointing to, to support ministries. I mean, I release you to go and make ridiculous amounts of money and support the traveling preacher men of the planet. <laughs> but th think about this. This would be like Bill Johnson or Billy Graham loading up you know, his 15-passenger his van or, or his tour bus with ex-prostitutes that are still single. This is how Jesus was traveling around. Can you, can you see that he would be the, like the hottest topic of gossip? <laughs> that he just didn't care. He knew that the best way to love these women out of their addictions was for them to be as close to him as possible. Yeah. Come on with that. Just get close to me, and you're going to get healed. <clears throat> Sugar mama anointing. Come on, Jesus. <laughs> See, and Mary is one of these people. Mary Magdalene has been invited into the inner circle, really. She's traveling around with him everywhere. But she is used to pretending like people, she's used to people pretending like they didn't know her. And, and when she would walk by, they would say, oh, there, 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 there goes that lady. You know what she's into. She's used to people denying any association with her, but Jesus treats her like an honored friend. And so you can imagine that she might be kind of attached to this Savior. Don't you think so? Yeah. If you were coming from that life and suddenly there's a, a man that loves you perfectly in the most pure and wonderful way, loves you so powerfully, and speaks words that set you free from all these wounds, all these demons, and suddenly you're breathing free air. Would you want to be anywhere else other than around him? No. She probably wasn't even quite right when she wasn't near him. She, there were probably mornings when they woke up from wherever they'd camped out or whatever village they were sleeping at, and, and first thing in the morning she wakes up and looks for him. And, she, and if she doesn't see Jesus, maybe she's thinking, oh my goodness, is this the day he said he was going to leave us? And she, she might look, look for him and go out to where he prays on the mountain and, and see him, that he's still there and breathes a sigh of relief because she still has him. I've been around people like that who've seen the Lord and all you want to do is just have them put their arm around you. I have a friend that um, saved a, a Muslim man at a, at a waffle house in such a powerful way, led him to the Lord, that he, um, my, my friend was leaving waffle house, and the, the Muslim man that just gave his life to Jesus ran out after him and said, where are we going now? He was going to leave his family. I'm not endorsing that. He was going to leave his job. He was going to leave everything because he just met someone who was Jesus on the earth. And this is Mary. She's by his side until the worst day of her life, his crucifixion. And in John 19, you can see that she's at the cross with Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary, the mother of Jesus. 
Even on the cross, Jesus can't escape bitterness. And what did they offer him to drink? Gall, bitter gall. And I bet as Mary Magdalene watched Jesus die on the cross, she felt her own life dying too. I bet she was wondering, am I going to have to go back to my old life? Our community is broken. It's scattered. All the men ran off. I mean, there's, there's only John, and John isn't going to hold this together. She's probably seeing her own life slipping away as Jesus is breathing his last. And wondering, what is she going to do now? If you guys want to open up to John 20, this is where we're going to end. This is John chapter 20, verse 1. Actually, I want to read it from my own Bible. I love this Bible. I've had it since I was, I think, 13 years old. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. I mean, right there you can see that she has no life other than him. This is three days after she watched him die, and she's still just sitting by his tomb, getting there first thing in the morning. She actually probably broke the Sabbath to be there. To walk that far on, a, on the Sabbath. So she came running. Oh, okay, so she saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter, the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over, looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed they, did, they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. So they're thinking, grave robbers. Someone stole the body of our Lord. They've taken everything from us. They killed him. Our community is scattered. And now they took his body. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood outside the tomb crying. Guys, she didn't have a home. Her home was wherever Jesus was. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. <laughs> this actually probably looks a lot like the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant with the two angels flanking the place where the blood was laying. 
So the angels asked her, Woman, why are you crying? She says again, They've taken my Lord away, and I don't know where they've put him. At this she turned around. This is, this is crazy to me. Anybody ever want to see an angel, like with your open eyes? How about have a conversation with an angel? Wouldn't that be cool? Wouldn't that kind of like change your life? How about two angels in glorious white sitting in the tomb of Jesus who are wanting to have a conversation with you? Wouldn't that be cool? Jesus, or Mary just turns away from them. Guys, when your life has been changed by the Lord and you've been touched by His love and all you want is Jesus, two angels, even if they're speaking to you, will never suffice. She looks at them like they're squirrels in the forest. And she's saying, where is my Jesus? Where is Jesus? At this, she, this is verse 14. At this she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, you tell me where you've put him, and I'll come and get him. This is my favorite part. Jesus turns to her, says, Mary. And in that moment, the definition of her name is changed. And in that moment, all at once, she realizes he's alive. That she's never going to have to go back to her old life. All of her bitterness, all of that place inside of her where she was afraid that she'd have to go back to being an isolated dungeon tower was healed. And her name was redefined. It's been the Lord's heart all along. That's why when, when Abraham was called to offer up Jacob, it was in a place called Moriah, which means the Lord's bitterness. And the Lord provided a ram with his head stuck in the thorn bush. And the name of that town was redefined and changed to the Lord provides. Jesus. She turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Teacher. And then he says something weird. He says, don't cling to me. Don't cling to me. For I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I'm returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. You know, um, 
In the Old Testament, the high priest entered the holy place once a year to provide the blood sacrifice to, the, to atone for the sins of the nation. And in order to go into the Holy of Holies, he had to go through this ritualistic cleansing. And if someone touched him, he would be unclean again. And if he went into the Holy of Holies, there's a good chance he would die from being unclean, and so he would have to be ritualistically cleaned all over again. And it says in Hebrews that Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. His, perfect, his sacrifice was made perfect. And Jesus is not just the high priest, he's also the sacrifice. So Jesus is coming up from the grave where he had descended into the lower parts of the earth. And this is the greatest moment in all of history. The moment that's been on the heart of the Father since the beginning. The moment that's been on the heart of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit since Eve was duped by the serpent and ate of that tree. This is the moment where God would regain unbroken communion with his children when Jesus would ascend into heaven and pay for our sins forever with his blood and present his sacrifice in that place. And he's coming up out of the grave and he sees Mary weeping there. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. He says, I can't leave her, bro I can't leave her broken. I can't leave this one that's moved my heart. Just weeping there, I gotta tell her. And he interrupts the greatest moment in history and takes the chance that she might actually touch him. Like the high priest of the Old Testament would be terrified to have that happen. And so Mary sees him realizes he's alive and all of his words are true and lunges at him. He says, Rabboni, teacher! And he backs away saying, don't cling to me. Don't touch me. I know, I know, it's me. I'm alive. <laughs> Just go and tell everyone. Go and tell everyone that I'm alive. Isn't it awesome? Yeah. The, even, even, the, even the fact that the way that he redeemed the name of woman. Eve was the one that ate of the fruit and sin, like it says in, in 1 Timothy. And then Jesus makes the first apostle to the apostles a woman. Yeah. Redeems her. <laughs> You know, the fact that God would come as a baby and grow up to be an, a man just like us, and, and then this God who came as a baby would die in a horrible, humiliating way to pay for our sins is so incomprehensible and awesome. And many times what we do as believers is we camp out there and, and you, can, you can dive in so deep in just how Jesus suffered for us and how he was broken and humiliated and what he endured on the earth from people not understanding and betraying him and disowning him. And there's so much good in that. But we stop at the crucifixion. And if we just focus on the pain and the suffering, then we miss the most important part. That Jesus didn't stay in the grave. Come on. Right. 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 
He's not a God of death. Amen. He is a God of resurrection. <laughs> you know, the Lord told me that um, we can't have resurrection power on something in our lives if it hasn't died yet. Come on. <laughs> a lot of us honestly are walking around half dead. A lot of us. Just like Jesus when he was nailed to that cross, we've had people put a nail through our ankles. We've had people strip us, humiliate us, uncover us. We've had people strip the skin off of our backs. We've had people put crowns of thorns on us. Figuratively. We've had people even hammer in one of the nails right here in the, in the other wrist. But you know that when, when you're, uh, if, even if you've you know, been trying to like, kill yourself, you can only get that nail in your ankle and then this nail in your wrist. But then the, what are you going to do with this hand? You're just nailed there, right? Do you know who wants to put that final nail in? The Lord. The one who experienced all the pain. Don't you want the one who sympathizes with all of our pain and all of our weaknesses to be the one that finishes you off? <laughs> Guys, if you don't have resurrection power on your life, it's because you haven't died. You have to let it go. Or that area in your life that's just been floundering, that has no power on it, you got to let it die. You got to give it to the Lord. And if you've never entrusted Jesus to give you a new life, He wants to do that today. This is the perfect opportunity. He is not a God of death. He is a God of resurrection. Do you know that um, if your lives depended on me uh, crucifying my firstborn son, Judah, who's three years old, y'all better go buy life insurance. Get the affairs of your life in order because you're going to die. <laughs> Seriously. I would skip town with my son to save his life. That's how much I love him. I mean that. Any father in here would say the same thing. If you look at your, your son or your daughter and think, I could you know, sacrifice my son or daughter to save strangers? Sinners? People that don't deserve to be saved? No father would do that, right? No father. Unless he had the power to resurrect. God wasn't going to kill his son and leave him dead. He was going to pay for all of our sins and bring him back so that we would know that we'll never die. So that we could be ushered in into a new life.